series on looking at the life of Abraham, and one of the reasons we've done this is because we thought that more than any other person in the Old Testament, arguably Abraham, the father of our faith, shows us what it looks like to be called to Christ and then be called to serve. And he is, for various reasons, a central figure in Christianity, in Jewish religion, in even Islam and Muslim. And so if you have taken, been with us for the past several months, you'll see how distinctly um, Abraham himself in his life has been called and transformed by the grace of God and pushed out to be the forefather of our faith, and many people look to him. But we're going to finish this series today by looking at how uh, in one section of his life he has finished well. And so I'm going to read through the entire chapter, Genesis 23. If you're able, I want to ask you to stand and read the word of God with me and hear the word of God from Genesis 23. Genesis 23, starting with verse 1. This is God's word. I pray that you may be blessed. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me a property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat, me, entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a bearing place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear, if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was at which was to the east of Mamre, and the field and the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout his whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And this is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, it may come as a surprise to most of us, but a handful of years ago, pre-COVID, I, at one of my more foolish moments, decided to attempt a 5K run. And I haven't ran uh, actually my entire life, and so I thought I wanted to get into exercise, do this for fellowship, and ran the 5K, but really is really running 1K and walking 4K. And it was an interesting experience because never been to a run like that. It was over in Irvine. 
And I realized that I felt a lot of fear of man and pressure because you get dressed up, you get your number, and there's all these people at the starting line and the finish line. And so I wanted to look good in front of everyone. So when you start off on the race, you run hard because you want to look in shape, you want to look sleek, you want to look like you're cardiovascularly running really well. So I did that in the beginning, and I would walk most of the race. And when you're coming back, it looked like there were even more people at the finish line. And better than starting, I wanted to finish well. And I wanted to look good, like chariots of fire, and just kind of blaze the path to glory. So I mustered every strength that I could, and all the little energy that I had, and I ran as fast as I could towards the finish line. And slowly did I realize that all of a sudden, 80-year-old people were passing me. <laughs> Five-year-olds were passing me, eight-year-olds. Everyone's passing me, and I just kind of gave up, and I walked across the finish line. where everyone watching. I think that when you apply that to life in this passage, everyone starts off strong, but very few finish off well. And this passage, this chapter, teaches us about the realities of life, about grief and death, about following the promises of God, about recognizing that a lot of life, even as a Christian, we make so many mistakes. There's so many times we make two steps forward and take two steps, three steps back. And we try to process what that all means, and we kind of consider, what does it mean to finish life well, to finish that race well? And I think this passage gives us exactly a picture of what that looks like. This is a long journey between a marriage of Abraham and Sarah, following the promises of God, navigating the complexities of traveling through Canaan, fighting different kings of different nations, believing that they would have a biological son in Isaac, and they had a messy journey called life. It was not an ideal marriage by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that by God's grace, they finished well. They continued to pursue God, live out of his promises. In fact, Solomon, a king, later, generations later, who wrote this book called Ecclesiastes, in chapter 7, verse 2, says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay, lay it to heart. And even in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, this wise teacher, is saying, basically, it's better to go to the person who's mourning rather than the person who has a lot is eating a good meal. And he's saying there's a lot of wisdom to understand the meaning of life in that way. And so we're going to follow that commandment, and we're going to go into the house in mourning. And I pray that we can learn something about life, about the importance of priorities and the importance of finishing well. Because in this hustle and bustle, living in Orange County, pursuing the American dream, sometimes we forget really what the priorities of the promises of God means for us. And so I want to look at this passage from three stages of the passage, neatly laid out. And first, we're going to look at the death of Sarah. Secondly, we'll look at a purchase for Sarah. They had to get a cemetery plot land. And thirdly, the burial of Sarah. So we're going to look, look at what does it mean to finish well by looking at the end of Sarah's life in this marriage, by looking at Sarah's death, looking at her burial place, and then looking at the actual burial we're going to spend most of our time probably on death as you think about grief and mourning, but let's look at this together. Read with me verses 1 to 2 again. This is the death of Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
So even two verses, we know this is really about Sarah because her name is listed there four times. It's so repetitive. Sarah lived 127 years. The years of her life were with Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath, that is Hebron. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is the end of Sarah's life. But in these two verses, we have three beginnings, three firsts in the Bible, three firsts at the end of this life. The first thing we see in the story of the Bible is that Sarah is the first and the only woman whose age was recorded when she died. That tells us that she's a really special, important person, the first and only woman whose death age is in the Bible. Now, it's interesting as a side sort of parenthetical note, you don't really see, actually, you don't see any commandments to say, follow the example of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But there are two examples in the Old Testament, one in the New, that says, follow the example of Sarah as someone who suffered but was a woman of faith. And that shows us that she is a somewhat, she is a woman of importance. That's the first thing we see that's unique. A second first is this. This is the first funeral in the Bible. This is the first time that there is an elaborate explanation or purchasing of a cemetery plot land, first funeral in the Bible. In fact, this entire chapter is sprinkled with death. Death sprinkles and peppers the passage in the verses throughout this. There's a reference to the death of Sarah eight times. The word for bury is there 13 times. In fact, the first verse and the second to last verse, verse 1 and 2 and verse 19 to 20, the sandwich of this chapter is about the death of Sarah. So this is certainly about the end of life. The end of a stage of Abraham's life is certainly about a funeral and about the death of Sarah. The third first we see in here is that it's the first time in the Bible we see a man crying. And that's got to be significant. Men, brothers, it's okay to cry. It's actually manly to cry in the right way and to mourn. The tears that come through Abraham's eyes flow from Abraham's heart. Now, years ago, we did a series on tears because tears is one of the most powerful and profound languages and ways to communicate what you're doing and what you're feeling in your life experience. At least for Abraham, what is communicating is that he had a deep love. He had a deep loyalty. He had a deep commitment. He had a deep care for this woman he did life with for most of his life, the first man crying in the Bible. And I want to plant there a little bit and look at What does it mean to cry? What does it look like to grieve and to mourn? And how does that help you to finish well in life? Because most of us have already gone through a loss in life. And I want to talk with you and discuss this with you by looking at the mourning and the crying of Abraham. Verse 2 specifically says, Abraham mourned and wept for Sarah. It's really quick, very succinct. But don't miss the power of this. Those words there, mourn and weep, they are deep, agonizing words. They're huge. He is, this is a man in deep pain because he lost his wife. Mourn, that word literally means beating the chest. So it's an expression of grief. He's beating his chest. It's raw, it's agonizing, it's hard, it's harsh, and he's just struggling. It is just a man who is in deep pain and tears. And even if you think at Look at Abraham's life. In the previous chapter, he dealt with death. In the current chapter, he's dealing with death. Chapter 22, he was dealing with the potential death of his son Isaac. This chapter in 23, he's dealing with the actual death of his wife Sarah. And he's enduring all this heartache alone. This is a man going through grief and mourning. 
And so I want to discuss with you briefly, what is grief and how does that help you to finish well? So let's look at this. What is grief and how does it help you to finish well? Broadly, grief is just an experience of a loss. Now, the primary way that we experience loss and grief is going to be losing a loved one. But you can grieve anything in life. You can grieve your physical health. You could grieve an experience where you move from one state to another. You can grieve a job loss. You can grieve your mental abilities. You can grieve anything because we live in a world that is temporary and we lose things all the time. So broadly speaking, grief is a common human experience, but it's an experience of loss. It's all the emotions, all the experiences you feel when you lose something so important to you. That's the broad picture of describing the experience of grief. Because if you remember years ago, pre-COVID, when we started, or right when COVID hit, we did a series on emotions. Every emotion of the human experience speaks very, very clearly. Every emotion speaks a very distinct purpose and plan and emotion. So if you're fearful, it says, I'm under threat. If you're angry, it says, that's really wrong. Grief says, I've lost something really important and I really need you right now. That's what grief is saying. But here's the tricky thing. The expression and emotion of grief can come out in any emotion. You know, sometimes you grieve through anger. Sometimes you grieve through bitterness and loss. Sometimes you grieve through frustration. Sometimes grief is given and expressed through relief because there's a respite, there's a moment of rest. Sometimes grief is even experienced in joy. Sadness is going to be associated with grief, and that's right, because of all the emotions, sadness is the star player of grief. But still, grief can come out in all kinds of emotions. That's why whenever I visit, whenever I pray for, whenever I engage someone who just lost a loved one, we, I recognize over time to always say the person's name of who they lost and talk about memories. And you'll see there's a rainbow in a world and roller coaster of emotions of someone who's in the midst of grief. It'll be led by tears and sadness, but when you talk about stories and things you loved about the one you lost, there's relief, there's a moment of joy, sometimes there's laughter because you remember the funny conversations and stories that you've had, and sometimes you're angry because you think, I've done all this for God, and why did he take my loved one away? All of that is your expression and your processing of grief. In fact, in this one book by a couple of counselors, Groves and Smith, they said, picture grief like a picture frame. And every emotion of the human experience is on that picture. Grief encapsulates and frames all of that. That's what grief is for you. It's a rainbow of emotions. But here's the thing. If you believe in Jesus, like Abraham, I think, broadly did, if you're a believer here today, and if you're not, thank you for here, but I'm going to try to make an argument. If you're not really a Christian, we have a better way possibly for you to consider to help you grieve better. And if you grieve better, you'll heal faster, you'll heal better, and it'll help you to get to the end. That's why we talk about what grief is and why it's so important to make it to the end and finish well. Every other generally worldview of grief basically says several things. You know, one, one perspective on grief is saying, uh, well, grief and sadness and sin, it's all an illusion. You know, it's not real. You know, just kind of 
positively think yourself out of that supposedly illusionary view of grief. There's nothing sad, nothing bad, there's no hurt, you got to be stronger. So that's sort of some Eastern religions that say, just kind of get out of it, it's an illusion. Suffering and sadness is just something that's not really an actual reality. Another view of grief is basically saying, you know, you just got to suppress it in. Be stronger. Lift yourself up. You know, you're feeling sadness, you're feeling hurt, but just press it down deep inside and maybe you could get through. I'm here to tell you that's one of the worst ways to deal with grief because you can't get rid of grief by pressing it down. When you press grief down, you're actually concentrating it in this imagery and it's becoming more potent, more powerful, stronger, and it's going to come out in some form or fashion. So you can't just suppress grief down. And you also just don't want to unleash grief where you're just angry at the world and you raise your fist at God and raise your fist at people and saying, everyone's bad and this world is dead and this world, we're in a, we're in a position and posture in which this world is going to crumbling, crumble down on itself and nothing is good in this world. So you don't want to just suppress grief. You don't want to just unleash grief. You want to process it. You want to release it in prayer. Grief. This is how Christian grief looks like. The first thing which I know is really hard is that for people who are in grief, and I think Abraham too, he's never going to get over the loss of his wife. And you may not either. It'll be part of you. It shapes you. It forms you. It teaches you. It's almost something that attaches itself onto you, and it's part of you, and it shapes you who you are today. Losing someone or grieving an experience could be part of you of who you are forever, but it doesn't dominate you. And Christian grief, in some level, is going to be temporary. It's temporary. It may feel like a lifetime, but it's temporary because when Jesus comes back and he brings us into the kingdom of God, no more tears or pain, no more sorrow, no more grieving. So it is temporary. That's the first thing that Christianity has to offer because there's a hope of the kingdom in Jesus. But maybe more specifically, if you look at how to grieve as a Christian, the Apostle Paul talks about this, and he teaches his church in a city called Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says this to the church because church has lost a lot of people. And Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Those are people who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So notice what Paul says here about Christian grieving. It doesn't say stop grieving because that's for the faithless and for the weak. It actually gives permission to grieve actually implies you should grieve. Grieve may be a way to worship God broadly because we honor that he's the, the Lord of life and death. So it doesn't say stop grieving. It just says don't grieve like everyone else because you have the resurrection of Jesus. So Christian grieving doesn't say stop grieving, but it says to fully grieve. Well, how do you fully grieve? You grieve with the twin emotions of being truly sorrow, sorrowful, but truly hopeful. And it never separates out when you grieve. You are absolutely devastated like Abraham. You truly grieve by being truly sorrowful for what you have lost. But you also grieve by being truly hopeful because Jesus promises that he'll make it better. And you have the hope of the resurrection. The way you want to release your grief is going to be able, through, be able, through, be able to happen through talking and sharing that burden with others but also sharing that burden through prayer with God. So you don't want to suppress grief. You don't want to unleash grief. You release it by sharing and talking about it, couched in true sorrow and true hope, 
with brothers and sisters in this church, but also praying about it with God. And when you process this, it'll be a way in which the Word of God, living and active, can take hold of your grief. And more importantly, a person who is deeply intimate with grief, and that's Jesus Christ, who is the only person who grieved perfectly in all the deaths that he's seen, especially in Lazarus, and even for the deaths and the people who are hurting, Jesus is someone who was always grieving. He was always crying, but he was never hopeless. He was full of love. He was always compassionate, but he never lost it. He was never, he was never um, mentally ill. He never lost, actually. He never went crazy, but he was always cool, calm, and collected. But he was a person that came into this world to die for your grief and understands your pain and understands your hurt. And he's saying, I'm going to walk alongside of you in this one journey called life, just like he did for Abraham and Sarah. But he says, I'm not just going to empathize with your loss and sorrow. I'm giving a full hope in my death and resurrection. And that is why Christianity has a different way to grieve than any other religion or worldview. Because a person who is intimately involved and understands grief comes alongside of you and redeems your grief, changes it, and gives you a real hope in his resurrection. And if you can look to Jesus through at least your grief, then and only then you can finish well, because no matter what, you're going to lose something very important to you. And your ability to grieve with hope, with true sorrow and true hope, is going to be absolutely necessary to make it to the end. But this leads us to our second point. How do you finish well? Learn how to grieve well. But secondly... This is an interesting passage. The second thing that Abraham does is that immediately after he grieves, and he's still not fully done grieving, it's with him the rest of his life. What does Abraham do after this? He goes into a business mindset. He's like, I need to go negotiate a contract. Look at verses 3 to 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I think what Abraham is doing here are several things. On a personal level, I think he's honoring his wife, like we all do, a proper burial place. The second thing we'll look into is that he's holding on to the promises of God because he's burying Sarah at Hebron, which is the center of the promised land of Canaan, which means that he's burying his wife in the center of God's promises. So there's a big picture and there's a small picture. I think he's grieving his wife to honor her, but he still remembers the big picture of God's promise to say, I'm going to give you this land. And therefore, Abraham says, I'm burying my wife in the center and the target of this land that God has promised me. But this is what's really strange. Abraham is always negotiating. He's a shepherd, but he's an awesome businessman. He negotiated a few chapters before to acquire a well in the promised land. But now he's negotiating to get a piece of land. This is something for you and I to understand. God promises to work through the details of your life in the everyday wisdom of your conversations, your business transactions, your work, and your ability to negotiate and engage the details of everyday life. So we oftentimes think, that if God promises this to me, we get sort of entitled, well, he's going to do it with a snap of the finger, but God uses his, he uses means, he uses providence. He wants to engage all that you are and all your gifts. So the amazing thing about Abraham is that he's beating his chest in agony, and the next thing he gets up and he engages in everyday life and business and details. You don't know how much time has passed. 
But one thing about moving and finishing well is that you can never get stuck in life and just plant yourself and not move forward. Abraham is experiencing the deepest heartache of his life. And after he grieves, he gets up and he moves forward in life by the promises of God. That's how you finish well. You finish well by finishing well, not by being incapacitated, by being decimated by your own sins and by your own travesty and your own suffering. We don't discount that, but in the promises of God, Abraham is able, by the grace and power of God, to move forward, and he begins a boring discussion about negotiation. Let's look at this negotiation. This is how savvy Abraham is. Verse 4, we see that Abraham's a stranger. And back then, if you're a stranger, you can't buy any real estate in Canaan. That's just the laws of the land. So he gets up and he says, can someone please give me some land to bury my wife? And you know that it's a weird interaction because Abraham's a shepherd, not really that sophisticated, but he has so much honor. Kings come to him. Generals come to him, and the crowd is there, and the crowd, they give him a lot of honor. They call him the Prince of God. They say, my Lord. So he has a lot of clout, a lot of reputation, and they say to him, you can have the best, choicest land in Canaan. Now, when you think about that, you're saying, that's an awesome deal. But then the conversation negotiation goes a little bit weird, because Abraham says, no, I actually want to buy this cave. It's owned by this guy, Ephron. Can you please tell him and ask him to sell it to me? He doesn't want free land, but he wants a specific land, and he wants to buy it. He wanted a cave at Machpelah and asked Ephron to do this. And this is what Ephron says. He's out in the crowds, and a voice just kind of projects out. He says, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury or dead. Now, don't misunderstand what's happening here. What's happening is essentially is that this guy, Ephron, he's taken advantage of the situation. This is why. 400 shekels for that piece of cave and land is an absolutely expensive price. You know, sort of like the real estate markets of today because mortgage rates are so high. It's just super expensive. You know, this is like buying land in Orange County or L.A. or New York City or San Francisco. It is just an astronomically expensive price. And this is what Abraham's doing and why he's negotiating. The reason he doesn't take it for free is because later on, other people can come and say, we're going to take the land back. The only way for Abraham to really possess the land is if, they, if he purchases it and there's public witnesses. See, you and I, if you ever buy a house or a piece of real estate, the way we do contracts is that we sign on the dotted line. Back then, they don't sign on the dotted line. The way they sign the contract is that they make it public. That's why at the city gates, because the city gates is basically the courtroom. And then you have important people there in a crowd. So the only way Abraham can ensure that he can sign on the dotted line is if he, one, pays for the land, and two, there's witnesses there. That's why he does it in front of the crowds. And the reason he wants to pay for the land and have witnesses so he can sign on the dotted line is because there will be no doubt that this land now belongs to Abraham. And that's how God's promise begins to be fulfilled, through the contractual negotiation of Abraham, through business, through the details of life. That's how it works in this life. God's sovereignty isn't something that just floats up in the air and drops blessings down on you. He uses your efforts. He uses your faculties, your experience. He uses your ability to negotiate and to engage the details of life. And that's how God's promises are fulfilled. And that's exactly what we see in Abraham. 
You see, before we go on to the third point, to make it to the end, you'll go through moments of loss. And if you get stuck at that moment of loss, you'll never finish well. At some point, you've got to move forward. You've got to live life. And the way you live life is not by living out of the details of your own life, but living out of ultimately the promises of God and who Jesus Christ is for you. This negotiation rubs up against the sensibilities of Western people like you and me. Because the first thing here, as I said, Abraham is not like you and me, or maybe it's just me. He wasn't entitled. If I was Abraham, and Abraham, and I'm talking to God, and God over and over again, he's having conversations. I'm talking to him. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a son. And he finally gives him a son. I'm going to give you land. And the God of the universe has talked to me, made these promises, gave me victory over these four other kings, gave me a biological miracle son in Isaac. And now he took my wife away. I'm expecting God to make it up to me and saying, God, you promised this to me. Make it happen. We be entitled. And sometimes in life, we are like that. God, I came to church every Sunday. I worshiped with you. I tithed. I sacrificed, served. Why did this happen to me? Now, that's oftentimes how you and I think. I did this for you. Why are you not doing this for me? But Abraham is not like this. He wasn't entitled. He mourned and he cried. And the first thing he did is he got up and he negotiated. And through that negotiation is how God fulfilled his promise to begin to give the land to Abraham. He had to negotiate. The other thing that kind of works up against our our Western sensibilities, is that this wasn't a good deal, especially in a capitalist society. We're all about getting that good deal. You ever read, actually, how our economy is doing these days? Goods and services, the consumer purchasing power makes up about 70% of our economic wealth and GDP, but because of interest rates and people strapped, consumer spending is dropping, especially in goods. Services are a little bit better. People are paying less for goods, and what they're saying is that everybody's looking for a deal. That's why Walmart is killing it, because everyone's going back to discounts and online coupons. Absolutely fine. But in our day and age, at least it tells us that Abraham was not motivated first by a good deal. He was motivated by the promises of God. 400 shekels for this small piece of land in a cave? Man, that's a steal. He got ripped off, but it didn't matter to Abraham because he had a vision for God. He had a vision for what God would do with him. And he was motivated not by personal preferences, not by his own ineptitude. He wasn't motivated by money, ultimately. He was motivated by the promises of God. He was a stranger. He was a resident alien. He was a sojourner. He didn't belong in the land of Canaan. But it shows, just like you and I, the way that we can finish well is by living out of the promises of God and not out of the principles of the world. Because you and I are just like Abraham. We are strangers, we are sojourners, we are resident aliens. Abraham wasn't a resident of Canaan. You and I are not residents of this world. We are residents of the kingdom of God. And it tells us that we are led by kingdom principles and promises fulfilled in Jesus. And not by the principles of the world, primarily, foundationally, or ultimately. That's how you're going to finish well. The death that touched Abraham with his wife Sarah pushed him to look beyond this world by faith to the hope of the kingdom. And in the same way, you finish well because we are led and touched by death that pushes us to look beyond this world to the hope and promises of the kingdom secured in Jesus Christ for us. We are not stuck in our depression. We are not stuck in our sorrow and grief. We hurt. We feel pain. 
but we move forward as we grieve with hope and sorrow. We're not led by the principles of the world, by money or getting a good deal, but we're moved by the promises of God who says, I'll give you a son, I'll give you a land, I'll give you a new family, and I'll give you a hope that this world can never take away. That's how you're going to finish well. But last but not least, really quickly, we looked at the death of Sarah, the purchase for Sarah. Lastly, let's look at the burial of Sarah. What lesson do we learn here about finishing well? It's basically in verses 17 to 20. But the one thing about Sarah, if you can imagine what her experience was like, she died in faith, she died believing, but she never died by receiving and never died by seeing. What do I mean by that? She died before the fulfillment of God's promises to her were ever there. She died by faith and died by believing, not by seeing. She never saw her, eyes, her son Isaac married, never saw her grandkids, never saw the full occupation of the land of promise, never saw the milk and honey, never saw actually her seed, which would be Jesus Christ coming in power and death and resurrection. You and I get to see all this, but she never saw all this. She never saw this. That's why, actually, in some ways, she had a forward-looking faith, and the Bible says she's a remarkable woman of faith. That's why, again, you never see a commandment to follow the mother of Jesus, Mary, but you have three commandments to follow Sarah. One of them implies in verses, uh, verses 11, 11 in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, it says this, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was considered him faithful who had promised. This is why. She died believing. She died in faith. She never died seeing. They say, this one Jewish scholar, that Christianity is largely a matter of memory. And what he means by this, this one scholar says this, A.J. Herschel, much of what the Bible demands can be comprised in one word. Remember. And he goes on to explain, remember for us is just a mental act. You just recount something. But literally, the word remember means to remember. We're all members here. And to remember in the most literal sense means that you take people who have part of the truth and you remember them back together in a community. That's why he says the opposite of remember is not forget, is to dismember, to disseminate, to disintegrate, to divide. And when you look at Sarah, you're thinking she died without seeing her family, dying without seeing Isaac. In some ways, she was dismembered. And why she's a lesson for us to finish well is that we can be remembered and have the hope that we will be remembered. What does that mean? Hebron. This church is called Hebron. I never knew why until I studied the passage. It's like, that's a weird name. But it's the center of the promised land. And you read the rest of Genesis, which we won't, but you realize Abraham lives a little bit longer until 175 years, and then when he dies, what is, where does he get buried? Hebron. When his son, Isaac, and Rebekah, when they die, where does Isaac and Rebekah get buried? Hebron. When their son, Jacob and Leah, when they die, where do they get buried? Hebron. Three generations are buried in the same place. 
It's basically Hebron is a deposit of skeleton and bones. And those skeleton and bones serve as a monument to the promises of God to say, one day you're going to be remembered with one another in the resurrection of Jesus. The bones in the tomb of Machpelah point towards the hope and the reassurance of a tomb where you don't find bones. What tomb would that be? The tomb of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. How do you finish well? Well, Abraham died by faith and believing and not by seeing. But she pointed towards, actually, the hope in Jesus Christ, the empty tomb in which you and I will be remembered. You finish well by holding on to this hope. The people that you have lost, they just went ahead of you, assuming they believed in Jesus. And our hope in this world with your family members and with one another and your friends and the hope of a new community and a kingdom is to recognize that who knows that life is outside of our hands and all of us may suffer loss and who knows what happened with us. But our hope in the resurrection is to ultimately say we're going to live not in this world but the hope to know that in the resurrection of Jesus, he will remember his community and his family and his church and remember you and me and unite us together. It's going to be an awesome sight. At actually here, when Jesus comes back at Machpelah, because you're going to see a family reunion of three generations of the patriarchs of our religion. They're going to rise together in the resurrection of Jesus, and so will you. That is, if you believe in Jesus. This world is temporary. But if you place your hope to realize there's pain and there's hurt and you're going to grieve and you're going to engage in the details of your life and hold on to the promises of God, is saying that remember that Jesus Christ is the only tomb who is actually empty. There is no bones in there. And that empty tomb is a reminder and a testament that he will remember all of us in unity and love and glory. Basically what Jesus tells in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 that we could remember together in the resurrection, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that is the trajectory of the Christian life, to know that we will be together, healed and whole and remembered. Well, many of you may not know, but our church is part of this denomination called the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. And there have been a lot of grieving among the churches in our denomination because two prominent pastors in the PCA have passed away. Pastor Harry Reeder, who was the senior pastor for years at Briarwood in Birmingham, Alabama, tragically passed away in a car accident. Not sure what happened, but he ran his car into a dump truck and was dead on the scene. Many of you may know Tim Keller, senior pastor of New York, Redeemer, passed away after a couple years of cancer fighting and pancreatic cancer. And then I was getting texts from a bunch of different pastors. You know, obviously I don't know anybody. I don't know Tim Keller, but everyone else does. And they have different connections. So I was getting like updates for people who know their family and his family. So they're discharging him. He's going to go into hospice by his request. Goes into hospice. And it's like, okay, maybe I'll have a week or two. The next morning, we heard that Pastor Tim Keller has passed away. If you didn't know this, maybe I don't either. These are two prominent pastors, but in some ways they represented maybe two different 
tendencies and bents in our denomination. One was a little bit conservative, one was considered more progressive. One was more doctrinalist, one was more culturalist. One was more old school, one was a little bit more new school. And there's engagement between maybe their parties that I present, maybe between them, discussions and arguments, debates. But both of them have been remembered and they are experiencing the full joy of worshiping together Jesus Christ. They're not arguing. They're no longer debating. They're no longer frustrated. They're no longer sending emails. And I don't know if they really did that. It's just they kind of represent maybe two different perspectives on Reformed Christianity. But they are remembered together. And so you will I be as well. If you're not a believer here today, I pray that you look at Jesus as he unites himself to you, if you believe in him, so that you have the hope that Abraham had in the hope that Christians here today at New Life Press have with one another. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace and the gospel of Jesus. And we see that gospel in its seed form, in the shadow form of the book of Genesis, in the life of Abraham, as he grieves and mourns but continues to live life and moves forward because he has the power and the courage and the strength to do so on the grace of Jesus Christ, holding on to the promises that you've given him and fulfilled in your son Jesus. Help us here today, Lord God, your church today, who are on the other side of the resurrection, even more so by the power of the spirit of Pentecost, be able to live this life and finish well. We thank you so much, and we pray that we would worship you, be blessed by you, and that you would be glorified in our service of you. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.